Welcome to the Infernal Schoolhouse Podcast, Explosions and Fire. I'm Brian. And I'm Aaron. And today on the podcast, we're discussing Dungeon Master Tools, and we are joined by two incredible guests from the RPG community. Professor Dungeon Master, known for his popular YouTube channel that offers a wealth of experience in game mastering, and Baron Durop from Dungeon Masterpiece, known for his innovative approaches to reimagining TTRPGs. Welcome to the podcast, gentlemen. Thanks for having us. So I'll throw this out there, I guess, to the both of you with just a nice general question to start off with. What would you say is your one must-have tool or resource, rather, you each find indispensable for enhancing your tabletop games? Professor, you go first. Names, a name chart. Name yeah, chart. I, I need to have the name <laughs> chart right there because I can create an interesting NPC that I find interesting, but they're never going to talk to that guy. They're going to want to know what's the name of this stable boy. And <laughs> I have to, you know, I just want to chuck some rocks and say, it's Ewan. That, that's the <laughs> that's the classic Dungeon Master moment, too, where you're, you're like, it's you flipping through pages trying to find a name <laughs> that's great baron what about you i think mine would actually have to be maze rats by ben milton from questing beast i find myself returning to that whole system of tables for all kinds of various tasks that i have in mind and i've been playing around with some different software tools and have figured out basically how to hook up maze rats to that so like as a prep tool, it's just absolutely incredible. Anything you could ever want to roll on in a non-overwhelming way is found in Maze Rats. Like th there are other tools like what it, or what's the um, professor? You may be able to jog my memory here. What is it? The Tomb of a Tome of Adventure Design is excellent. It's absolutely fantastic, but it's also like four hundred freaking pages long. <laughs> so like finding something while you're inspired to to kind of help guide your creativity is actually kind of difficult in that tool i find maze rats is is a great antithesis that's cool all right another question for you gentlemen so with the greater freedoms of the osr comes greater responsibility on the game master side when it comes to rulings and fairness how do you maintain this without a hefty tome of rules to reference or do you have that hefty tome always handy I never reference a rule book while I'm playing a game. Neither do the players. It is it is forbidden. Part of the art of role play is to just make it up and to have the confidence to be able to do that. I have a lot of experience, but for anyone with a D20 system, what they need to keep in mind is the numbers 10, 15, and 20. Because that's why armor classes start at 10. Because that's the 50% the mark. It a normal man fighting against normal men, you know, it's like 10 or better. So it's an average thing is 10 or better. 15 is tougher. 20 is pretty much impossible. That's mm -hmm. the yardstick by which I, I measure everything. Difficulty classes to me are all between 10 and 20. Under that, I wouldn't even call for a roll. Like if a lock is that easy or a door is that easy, I just say, well, you push open the door. Right. So that's how I run games without ever looking up charts. Baron? Yeah, I, I think I mostly agree with you. Uh, I seldom, if ever, am looking up something at the table. Like, I, I think the only time that I find myself looking up something is when there's a violent disagreement among the players about <laughs> what one of their spells do. 
and only if it means that like a character is going to die if we get it wrong and then just because it's you know fun and levitous to do it then i'll look it up as like the grand arbiter of the rules and say okay this is what it actually says and then everybody <laughs> kind of has an aha moment but outside of that yeah no it, it's it's a waste of time to like cross-reference all these different rules it's funny that you mention 10 15 and 20 as your benchmarks because i typically use you know like if i'm not using a roll under system which for dungeon masters who aren't familiar with that it's possible house rule for fifth edition it's where you just basically say roll a d20 and if it's under your character's ability score then they do it so if they need to make a strength check to lift the gate roll a d20 and as long as the number is below your strength you lift the gate. That's all there is to it. But if you if you're not using a system like that, then I usually benchmark it at eight, thirteen, and fifteen. Those are kind of maybe seventeen for something really difficult. And I only ever ask for an eight if something is like risky. Like this is an easy check, but there's a minor chance of failure. And mm. failure means something really bad is going to happen. So mm. it it still gives you, you know, like, oh, we got to double check and make sure I don't slip into the lava. <laughs> you know, like mm. I probably won't. But, you, you know, it's it's what is it that one line from Dumb and Dumber? So you're telling me there's a chance. <laughs> 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 that, that, that's mostly how I, I run those kinds of situations. But yeah, for the most part, just, you know, Monsters die at, after three rounds of combat, and you know they have an armor class of twelve, and it's a fifteen. If you think they should be harder to hit, like there's no reason to like double check all these noodly references of these different monsters or or various rules. They just just make it up on the fly. It's fine. Another one I would say though is if you house rule something in favor of the players, you know I'm I'm pretty brutal about making sure the players are also aware that what's good for the geese is good for the gander. So if the players come up with a really great shenanigan that they can get away with because of a dice roll, well, guess what? That means the orcs and the next session are probably going to be able to do something very similar. So, <laughs> you know, like I've even had times where I've said like, are you sure you want to be able to make this ridiculous check with this rope right now? Cause if you do it, you're basically justifying that all the other enemies in this game have the ability to do it. Like I'm, I asked the players, are you sure you want this to be a house rule right now? <laughs> so that's, that's kind of where I go. <laughs> nice. I would say one of my favorite OSR style games is Morkborg. And one of the things I love about it is it's, strange death metal soundtrack that is official to the game. Do you have any kind of like music or sound tools that you use during your games? Yeah, I've got a a whole what what do they what do they call those files on the iPod on I was going to call it an iPod. What is, what is it? A, a list? What do they call it? A playlist? Yes, that is what it is called. I just got all I got all I got all my my music on there. And I have a creeping around playlist and a combat playlist. Yes, that way good. I could just hit it really quickly. You're going to have to send me your creeping around playlist. I'm curious what that one entails. Yeah, it's mostly the soundtrack to Darkest Dungeon, actually. Oh, th yeah, that's basically what I use, too, for combat, actually. Darkest Dungeons has such a good soundtrack. Yeah, it's very good. 
That's what it is. If for for me, if I'm not using Darkest Dungeon, I mostly use Darkest Dungeon's combat music when I'm playing something that's very tactical, like Fifth Edition or something like that, or Pathfinder. Generally, I won't even switch to combat music in an OSR style game because I find the combats are over so quick and they're so deadly that the players just generally try to avoid them at all costs. Like even a, even a fifth level fighter can only go for like two rounds before they drop. Right. So with that said, my creeping around music as the professor has called it is mainly just relying on various playlists produced by cryo chamber. You can find their music probably on SoundCloud, but I almost always just use like YouTube, YouTube music, stuff like that. And they have phenomenal, really creepy, dark playlists that are equally good for like, you know, dungeon fantasy, grim fantasy, as well as some really like horror sci-fi and cosmic horror. Like they've got everything that goes all the way from, you know, OSR style style dungeon crawling to Call of Cthulhu to whatever else. As long as it's dark and creepy, they've got it there. And I also also have a hot take about Morkborg that I kind of share with a few choice people, so I'll share it with you. You all are choice people, right? My hot take is that Morkborg is really just an a RPG album art coffee table book version of the of a lo-fi remix of the Queen of the Down soundtrack. Or Queen of the Damned. Yeah. (laughs) Wow. So if you've ever watched Queen of the Damned. Very much so. Yeah. So, gentlemen, we had talked a little bit about your philosophy on not getting tied down in the rules during the game. One place where I've found myself and my players getting tripped up is when it comes to um, item management. What's in my kit? What do I have? Um, Do you have any advice or maybe just share your philosophy on how you sort of help your players and even yourselves from getting lost in the wheat on this point? Yeah, I say you have that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if it's if it sounds reasonable they have it if if you're an arctic explorer at the mountains of madness and you're investigating you're an archaeologist you know uncovering frozen cephalopods from beyond space and time is it reasonable that you have a flare yeah you do <laughs> is it reasonable that you have a parka yeah you do a pickaxe probably a machine gun, no. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm kind of right there with the professor. I usually just say, like, you know, take whatever you think is reasonable, put it down on your character sheet, and I'll even tell players, like, you can just say, this is a reasonable item in situ. Like, I don't know what this item is yet on my character sheet, but it's there. And this is kind of inspired by Nave and Cairn. And for that matter, Shadow Dark, I think, kind of lifted this idea from both of those, as well as Into the Odd, I believe. But their inventory management is basically you can keep 10 items on your character or one more for every point your strength is over 10. So if you have a strength of 15, you can take 15 items. And I just say, you know, write down what the obvious things that you're going to have, like armor, whatever weapon you have and toolkits. But then you can just kind of like say, I have like three things on my character sheet 
that I don't know what they are yet, but they're going to be reasonable things. And then, you know, in the moment they can decide what it is and then they write it down once they fill in the blank, basically. Another thing just to kind of dovetail that point is I also will let the player, especially when it's like really mundane treasure, like let's say you're doing this Arctic exploration that the professor was talking about and they come upon like a stockpile of supplies. Well, it's not the, I try to offload the, the cognitive load of being a dungeon master onto the players as much as possible. So I'm just like, there, it's a stockpile of stuff. Somebody roll a D six and add one to it. And then we just go around the table and everybody tells me like, this case is feel like you rolled, you know, a total of four. We just go around the table until everybody decides what are in the four cases. This is a case full of wine flasks. This is a case full of, you know, meal, meal ready to eat kits. This is a case of, and you just go around the table and the players decide what is in the, in the box. So it's also their responsibility to come up with their own survival tools in those kinds of situations. Cause I love you know, that. If they awesome. can decide maybe they don't, maybe they don't realize that they don't have rope and then they screw themselves by not picking rope <laughs> or they pick, you know, somebody gets really creative and pick something very strange and then they have to double back and figure out how to use you know, wool textiles as a rope. So that just gets really fun. Nice. That's very cool. So shifting gears a little bit, bit, I I will be transparent and say that I kind of grew up doing first, second edition and then 3.5. But one of the biggest things that I played was uh, a lot of the world of darkness games. And so I'm used to putting darkness into a game and flavoring it that way. And especially when it comes to more OSR grim, dark stuff, how do you ensure that the game feels dangerous, but not too overwhelming? Baron, you go first this time. Ooh, I was hoping you'd go first. Nah, I don't. <laughs> I'm, I'm punting to you. I mean, I could, I, I could do. You want, you want me to go? Yeah, go for it. <laughs> okay. So there are certain mechanics, in my opinion, that make the game more tense, and one of them is you're dead at zero hit points. So. Many people like our generation who got an AD&D, we were thrilled with the idea of negative hit points because it meant our character couldn't die. And today we have death saves and even tougher games like Shadow Dark have some sort of death save mechanic. Like we're so used to it. If you die at zero hit points, your players will always be filled with fear. Always. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if you have a wonky mechanic like a natural 20 does double damage or doesn't equal an extra D12 of damage. That makes them always fill with fear. And they are always very cautious about going into combat. Especially the other thing I do is I roll everything in public. So I and I'll, I'll generally this is a thing I do. If I've got five players and they're fighting five orcs or 10 orcs. I have five 20 sided dice and I just chuck them all at the same time. And I'll say, miss, 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 hit, hit. You suffer five, you suffer 10 and, or you you take 10. And the players are, they, it's super fast and they're just afraid all the time because they, they know they've seen me roll two twenties at the same time. And then all of a sudden, what seems to be a weak monster, you just took 16 points of damage. That's scary. 
And what what it does is it it makes the game tense all the time because you're afraid you're going to die. A game can't have tension if you're not afraid you're going to die. Yes. So that is, you can do that in 5e, but it is much harder. Baron? Yeah, so that's definitely a good point. I don't know why I didn't realize that immediately. So absolutely. I think the the thing to to also have is to make sure that you just have pressure applied to the player characters in every situation that you want to feel tense. So in good adventure design, you would always put the pressure of a time limit on the players to make sure that, you know, they're not just sitting around waiting for the most opportune moment because the opportune moment is not going to wait for them. So, you know, you have to save the the blacksmith's daughter from the goblin sacrifice before the full moon or she will be killed. Right. And you've got three days before the full moon or, you know, whatever arbitrary time constraint you want. So there's the general time constraint of the adventure itself, but then you can also apply that, you know, in micro when we're dealing with just a single encounter. So you have to turn off the, you know, the, the flame jets before the rolling flame trap comes up the hallway in three rounds. Right. And this is something that Hanker and Fernail over at formerly drunkens and dragons. Now we're in hammer used to talk about in one of his videos, is just having a timer for when some terribly overwhelming threat that is well telegraphed. Like the players know something is something bad is coming their way. And it's going to take this barely manageable situation into a completely unmanageable situation in, Oh, I don't know. Roll a D four, roll a D six, that many turns, you know, or roll a D three. I usually use a D three. Actually. I, I find when there's four rounds, it takes too long. So, <laughs> but, you know, and letting the players actually roll the dice kind of makes them feel like it's their fate is their responsibility, which is always a nice mental trick. It keeps me out of it. But yeah, the, always use the pressure of a time limit until something goes from bad to worse. That's, that's great. And I, I would like to add, if you watch films, if you're a, if you're an action film fan, as so many role players are, you'll notice this all all the time. Like a great film ending is Casino Royale, the James Bond film, because it's it takes place in a collapsing building and there is an innocent hostage. You know, so that's like two timers. That's what leads to the, the tension, because you don't want James Bond arriving on the say, scene and saying, you know what? I feel like taking a short rest so I can get half my strength back. You don't want that to happen. So just imagine your dungeon. Imagine how much better the final encounter is going to be if there the ceiling, if the room is collapsing, like you can see the pillars that suspend the ceiling, they are collapsing. And the cultists are going to kill the innocent victim. That's what propels a game. I love that. And I do love the comparison of movie pacing with gameplay as well. Mm -hmm. Keep them on their toes. That's right. 
So gentlemen, when we're talking about character death, so I love this idea that these characters have a very real possibility of dying, but talk to me a little bit about what you do and how you play it when one of your characters perishes mid-session. So I always try to get the characters, if they don't start with them, to quickly develop them some sort of, you know, friend or rival or ally or something like that, that is just kind of hanging out storyline wise or, you know, in world fiction wise, just kind of lurking there. We know the character exists. We may not have directly interacted with the character, but it's there. And in doing that, you kind of create this stable of characters that are narratively just hanging out in the fiction. And that way, whenever a character does die, you immediately have a pool of characters you can draw from that are already like in tune with the, you know, they may know some of the party members already because, you know, this it's the character's brother or, you know, the, the rogue who died owed the party or owed a bunch of gold to some, you know, thug who works for a a thieves guild kingpin right well it's the thug who comes knocking on the door and is now the next party member so now they've got an extra fighter you know so stuff like that the the traveler rpg i feel like did a really good job of kind of hammering that point home because traveler can be pretty lethal as well i think a lot of people nowadays the the further down the osr timeline you get the more and more you find hipsters willing to pull Traveler into the the OSR zeitgeist, um, even though it really has nothing to do with D anD. d But there's one of the, I think that's one of the best lessons learned from Travelers to just have narrative rival, you know, in fiction rivals and enemies. And enemies can become new PCs, right? Like you could. Why is the enemy related to this piece? Like why why is there an an a uh, antagonistic relationship between the dead PC and this enemy. And how can you narratively squeeze that in? Another way is just, you know, if you're in a prison, well, now you're just going to role play as one of these prisoners because your character died and there's a prisoner over there. So it's just always having a way to narratively jump into a new character as quickly as possible. And then, you know, figuring out, you know, give, giving yourself, doing the, the the homework, the prep work to get the characters onto a new character as as quickly as possible so that within 15 minutes of, of gameplay, you know, at the very most, the character's up and running or the player is up and running with a new character again. Right. Professor, what do you got? I love that prep work too. That's great. You just are anticipating that might happen. Yeah, Absolutely. All my characters have backup characters. There's a pool of backup characters that progress at two levels lower than the main party. So if you die, in comes the backup character. And that backup character will arrive, even if it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. They always arrived in the in the next room or the next encounter. It doesn't it, they they followed you and somehow they they were there looking for you but couldn't find you. Now now look, they're here. Because you want to get the player back into the game as soon as possible. I have seen uh, so many people in, in my comments say things like, uh, I'm having a, an episode coming up about like just terrible DM things. And so many people <laughs> over and over, this is a problem, 
I I came to the game, but the game master, I waited two hours before I got to play. <laughs> and it's not it's not an uncommon thing. It's a common thing. And the game master thinks they're like George Lucas or, you know, <laughs> they're like a film director and they're waiting for the perfect opportunity in the store to bring in this new character. No, it's a game. You bring the person into the next scene with their character that they already have made up right away. Totally agree. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. So I guess in a more general sense, for anybody who might be willing to make that leap to Dungeon Master for the first time, what maybe key piece of advice would each of you offer? I just gave this today. The first thing you should do is you shouldn't be afraid to be the Dungeon Master. And I I also talk, I was just responding to people uh, on comments on my latest video, and they're like, well, I, I want to play Merkborg, I want to do Shadow Dark. My players don't want to do it. Okay, be the dungeon master. Find other players. Build a group. Build a group. The best players you'll ever get are the people that have no idea what a role playing game is. Mm. You know, don't you know? And unless it's there, are, there are some exceptions. Like, you know, if if I am playing with a new dungeon master, you know, I will help help them. But and just being cooperative and you know helping make sure I don't cause too much trouble with, you know, the creative use of spells that could screw the dungeon master up. But I just think that you, you just go ahead and find people that never played a role-playing game before, because you're going to be great to them. You know, <laughs> if you play with your friends who, you know, everyone's got a Matt Mercer in their, in their circle of people. You know, the guy that's so much better at DMing than everybody else. Right. And you're always going to be, you know, like in my circle, it was this guy, Greg. He was the greatest game master of all time. And it was like everyone talked about how great Greg was. And but if I, you know, if my players knew Greg, they probably would would think I'm crap. But because I I found new players, they don't know Greg. So there you go. It's like when you're like now you're going to you, you see a Scorsese film and you're like, wow. This is so great. It's Martin Scorsese. But your kids like Shark Boy and Lava Girl because they don't know any better. <laughs> uh, that's excellent. So there you go. Baron? Okay. I th just So, yeah, just to add to what the professor was saying, I think that there's like this really weird Dunning-Kruger effect with players with moderate experience. And the professor is 100% completely correct brand new players are absolutely the best to play with because they suddenly realize that all literally all of their childhood dreams can be made manifest at this table, right? Like all the cops and robbers and cowboys and Indians that they wanted to play when they were four years old, they can now do that with goblins and crossbows. So they just try stuff and it's up to you to just say yes or no. And hopefully you'd say a whole lot of yes. And then if it's risky, say, sure, why don't you give me, you know, a 15 dice check? Because that sounds hard, you know, mm. and that's basically all there is to dungeon mastering. But the real benefit of getting new players is just because they don't know the rules. They just ask to try stuff. Mm. And there's there's such a beauty to that naivety that you completely lose when you get especially players who are into more crunchy mechanic games like fifth edition and pathfinder and so on 
that you really start to lose that magic with what I would call the mid-level player. Like if you've, if you were talking about it from like a corporate, corporate skill climbing the ladder, like a junior, you know, less than six months of experience is great. But once they cross that threshold, they stop saying like the, the way they talk about the game while playing radically shifts. It goes from, I want to sneak behind the crates and snuff the torch so that I can get up behind the bugbear without distracting him. It changes from that to I stealth up to the bugbear and they just chuck a die, hoping that you'll let them, you know, make a stealth check. But what is what is stealthing up to the bugbear mean? Now, because you know them, you know, these players know the mechanics of the game. They implicitly use that as some sort of shield to offload the cognitive, you know, the cognitive ability of actually role playing and describing what their characters are doing at the table onto the dungeon master to describe. And it may not have been and usually isn't what the player was actually imagining in their head. So they let the rules do like they let their understanding of the rules do the work of role playing for them. So it's absolutely abysmal. Usually players get in that get into that rut almost never get out. And it's and unless the player is a thespian, then they recognize what they're doing. You know, if if they've got like an improv acting or a stand up comedy background or something like that, they'll usually get out of that rut or players who have been playing for a really long time you know, more than five years and not that that's really long, but you know, five years consistently, they'll start to realize how dumb that is. And you know, you can, cause it's a dungeon master. You can kind of punish them for it. You know, if, if they say I stealth up to the bugbear, okay. You walk quietly immediately up to the bugbear. You failed your check because there is no role. <laughs> You're illuminated in torchlight, but you mo- you did it silently while he was staring at you. You know, so you can kind of be a jerk to passive aggressively train the players to not do that. But it's it's a real problem. Yeah, that resonates with me, too. And I'm thinking of a player that I've played with who will just announce like, okay, who's got the highest dexterity? And it's like, what? (laughs) Yeah, that happens uh, with me all the time with charisma. I play with lots of groups, including little kids. And there were one there's one scene where there was a ghost. He was an alchemist ghost. They go to this laboratory and they're they're asking they want some two kids out of the three want to talk to the ghost and the other one doesn't but that kid's got the highest charisma so they start fighting over who's gonna talk to the ghost and i i'm like it's only a five percent difference he's got a plus one in charisma it's just so stupid but that's what that's the metagaming that happens and it's exactly what parents says like six months in when you know the rules well enough that the magic is gone yeah Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's it's pretty sad that that happens. Anyway, to return to your question, what would we (laughs) (laughs) what what advice would I give to dungeon masters that are just starting out? I would just say, you know, do a little bit of world building on your own so you that you can call it yours, but start with something really small. It doesn't have to be massive. Just start with like a dungeon, design a little dungeon with less than ten rooms, maybe even less than five. Put some goblins in it. Put something that the the townsfolk are terrified of losing in that dungeon because the goblins stole it. 
you know, a really, especially if it, if it's a fragile item, like goblins stole a holy mirror from a church and they have to go in and get the mirror and also return it unbroken. Otherwise the town becomes cursed. Like that, that's stuff like that is great. Especially when goblins probably don't care how fragile it is and will smash it for fun anyway. Um, but you know, a little town with a little chapel with a little mirror and a little group of goblins is all you need. And that might sound like really tropey, but part of the magic, especially with new players of playing D and D is being able to live out those tropes. You can start doing the Patrick, you know, what not Patrick Stewart. That's an actor. You can start doing the M night Shyamalan stuff, you know, when you've got two, three years of experience under your belt, but just start really small, lean into the tropes and, only focus on like delivering a minimum viable adventure one or two sessions is all you need just get get that done and you can always go back to town and say that there's another dungeon on the other end of the forest next time you know you don't you don't need to overwhelm yourself with you know trying to learn all the lore of Faerun or something hmm. building on that i when I'm always wondering, like, why, why do people plan more than one session ahead? See, my advice would be plan a session of Dungeon Dragon. That's it. Not two, not three. I don't understand people who are like, hey, would you like to play this game of Dungeon Dragons? Oh, yeah. When are you playing it? Well, on Friday for the next 55 weeks. Like, who invites somebody like that? What you do is you always go, you, the number one adventure you're going to run, the most important session, is always the next one. And I've had a 30-year campaign. I never plan more than one ahead. I don't assume. so wild to me. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't assume they want to ever come back. Like, how do I know they're going to want to come back? We don't know that. So for newer Dungeon Masters, it's exactly what Baron said. It's five rooms filled with goblins and stuff. And, you know, the world can come later if the people are like, you know what? I want to see more of that world. Star Wars is a complete story unto itself. People decided they want to see more of the world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's and then you build it out. Otherwise, it's like when Universal just tried to do that dark universe. Remember the dark <laughs> universe was supposed to compete with Marvel, you know, and and they got all these actors, you know, they got like, I, I don't know who it was. Who's going to be the Wolfman? Like Javier Bardem and, and Tom Cruise. They had him pose for Vanity Fair talking about this wonderful universe. And he made exactly one movie. <laughs> it was bad. And it, because, yeah, you can't make a whole you can't plan a whole campaign. You plan a session, you know, not more than that. That's right. You know, with the dark universe and the mummy that you speak of, I think it's a good example of not letting your player, as in Tom Cruise, run the game for everybody else. So. <laughs> good analogy. <laughs> That's good. That's probably going to end up in an episode of Dungeon Craft. Thank you. <laughs> uh, we got to have a clickbait title like Tom Cruise ruined my game. <laughs> that's so good <laughs> yes. that's great uh, well gentlemen this has been an amazing conversation I just have one last question for you is there anything that we should have asked or is there anything else that you wanted to talk about Baron you want to go first is there anything else that we should have asked 
Uh, I don't know. I think that I think that's uh, got it for me. All right. Do you have anything? I always find it's interesting to like answer like how many groups do you really run and how often do you really run? So I'm going to ask Baron. Recently, you had some right. You had some turnover with your groups, right? I did. And this has honestly been last year was probably the least consistent D&D I have had in a decade. And, and, you know, just to kind of preface what I'm saying here, like if you want to get good at dungeon mastering, dungeon master, like the, the just put in the reps, go to the gym, lift the weight. If, if you want to be good at dungeon mastering, you just got to do it a lot there for about probably five years. I was dungeon mastering for three different groups a week. And mm. I can tell you that my skill as a dungeon master radically improved during that time because not, not just was I constantly weaning off the stuff that wasn't useful to prep because I was doing so much prep. I was prepping three different game sessions a week, you know, you, so you teach yourself, you know, it, when you have that much time constraint, you don't have the time to spend prepping two weeks to play for four hours, right? You have 15 minutes to prep for nine hours of gameplay, effectively nine to 12 hours. So you learn quickly the stuff you actually need to prep. You learn quickly what works for multiple different kinds of groups. Some are going to be really role play heavy. Some are going to be dungeon crawly. Some are going to kick in the door. Some are megalomaniacs and want to take over the world and move immediately into domain play. Uh, you know, like building a castle and taking, you know, taking control of the, of the region, stuff like that. So, you know, just do the work is, is you, you've got to dungeon master as much as possible. And if you think that you don't have friends that are willing to dungeon master, well, everybody's willing to play online. Now there's still bulletin boards down at your friendly na- neighborhood game store. Like there are tons of like, I I have literally the player group that I have right now that I'm playing once a week with started because my wife and I hired a dog sitter and just started chatting with my dog sitter about her day job. And now her and her husband and one other friend I have are now playing in my group. And we just asked, are you into D and D? Do you want to try D and D? Let's do it. You know, everybody's heard of what D and D is. And most people these days are super curious. There's never you, you Google dungeon master shortage news, put that in the Googles and you will see just how little dungeon mastering is actually being done compared to the amount of players that actually want to play and just people who are interested, but don't even know how to get started. If you open the gate, they will flood in to your game table. But yeah, you know, I was, I would say I was playing three times a week for about five years. And one of those groups, we would meet once a month also for a double session on the weekend. So probably once every two months i was playing four times a week you know technically five times i was getting probably 20 hours worth of dungeon mastering done on those weeks you know 12 hours on on the quote off weeks on the light weeks so Mm. you know just just do it a lot and see what works see what you need to keep see what you can stop prepping for you know that that's probably my advice there does does that illustrate 
the point you were going to make, Professor. <laughs> yeah, invite other people to play the game. Just expand. Yeah. It's not a pie where uh, there's only certain many pieces of pie. Just make more pie. Find out, find more people and and play with them. And if they only play once or twice, that's okay. That's not a failure. You know, you introduce them to the game. Some people will stick with it. I run at least two groups a week of young people. And then I have my older groups and then I have side groups and one shot groups and, and stuff. I run a lot of Dungeons Dragons and, and other role playing games. You know, Dungeons Dragons is just a whole that's that's my way of saying all TTRPGs. <laughs> uh, but... I actually have I have a question for you, Professor. This is something I've been kicking around in my head lately. Mm. Are you familiar with the West Marches style campaign? Sure. Have you ever successfully run one for more than six weeks? Yes. You are the second person I've heard that has successfully done this. It's... And the first one was the person who wrote the blog about it. I hear a lot of people talking about how cool it would be online. Yeah. But I've and like I've even tried to do it. You always get, you know, a couple occasional people who are into it. And then the players who aren't regularly showing up just kind of die on the vine. And it becomes a normal D&D group at that point. Oh, yeah, that that can happen. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah that that can uh, definitely happen to run that. My my friend Ade Sanya, I did an episode about him. He is a game club in Brooklyn which now he's moving to Lancaster and he does that. It's in a, he does an actual West marches style campaign and it's, he's got like bulletin boards keeping track, but he's got a club where people join, you know, they're paying money every month. Oh, so that's, that's nice. That's why it works. And he coordinates the whole thing, but yes, it, it kind of develops the way you said where some people are more or less interested and you end up, it all coalesces into one group and the best, West March's style campaign I can think of is Gary Gygax, the keep on the borderlands. It's a, it's a classic. That's what it's supposed to teach you. That's what it's right. teaching. Yeah. And just for the audience, if you're not familiar with what a West March's style is in a nutshell, it's where you have like a stable or a pool of some 15, 20, maybe more players, just throw all of them into a discord chat and say, okay, everybody, the game session possible times are Tuesday and Thursday at 6 p.m. Every Friday, bring chips and drinks and we'll play D&D. And it's on the players to decide when they're coming in the allotted times. And you just expect that players are going to figure it out and show up during the appropriate times. And you play effectively pseudo adventure of the week within a contained setting where the players just get up to shenanigans and it's up to them to figure out what they want to do next session. Usually there's somebody who is kind of like a, a, a group scribe that updates the entire player base. What all happened in the last session. I find that that typically falls to the dungeon master, but occasionally you'll get a player who's good about it and we'll, we'll do that job as well. Great stuff. Uh, excellent conversation, gentlemen. Thank you so much. Uh, so again, my friends, thank you to Professor Dungeon Master from Dungeon Craft and Baron Durop from Dungeon Masterpiece. Um, and thanks everyone for listening this week. Uh, please check us out on our Instagram or at our website, infernalschoolhouse.com. Oh, and we sell stuff on Etsy too. Thanks everybody. Thanks a lot. Thank you. Thank, thank you.